Well, aloha and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, live from Maui, Hawaii. Uh, my name is Michael Benner, and uh, happy to be with you today and and every Sunday, pretty much come rain or shine. Today is September 6th in most of the world, and uh, that's 2009, by the way. And uh, again, happy that you've decided to spend a little bit of time with us today as we talk about the esoteric, mystical, and metaphysical traditions of the world. A lot about human uh, development, personal and spiritual development in these classes. And today, our topic is a positive look at negative thinking. In other words, how does a positive thinker, someone who is affirmative, uh, somebody who is goal-oriented, uh, somebody who is, by their very nature, life-affirming and enthusiastic, how are they going to deal with negativity? Are they going to ignore it and deny it? Uh, I think not. Um, let's just start with the basic premise that one who ignores and denies the negative is not so much a positive thinker as they're just rather foolish. Um, in that case, I would say being a fool would trump being a positive thinker if you just deny the negative. Uh, I have heard many people object to the whole idea of being a positive thinker for this very reason. They have a half-baked idea that positive thinkers are are not realistic. And that uh, the only realist in the crowd is somebody who's pessimistic. And a pessimist will never say he's a pessimist. Well, rarely. He'll say, I'm a realist. And you're the fool for thinking so positively when nothing ever works out. Well, <laughs> things rarely work out for negative thinkers because uh, the mind is magnetic. That's one of the principles that I'd like to put forward. Uh, many people were impressed a few years ago with that um, DVD called The Secret and the book that followed it uh, because it, it really lifted into popularity the ancient law of attraction. And if you think about it, that phrase, the law of attraction, what does that mean? To attract. What does it mean in a relationship to say somebody you're interested in, uh, you're very attractive, or I'm very attracted to you. Some chemical allegory, we could talk about affinity. I have an affinity for you. We have an affinity. But often as not, we use uh, references from electromagnetism, the whole idea that you are attractive or at least attractive to me, that I find you attractive, or I'm attracted to you, uh, hints at magnetism. Well, there's only a little problem with this, in that in the physical world, it's opposites that attract, and like that repels. Um, you might say, well, that's okay. I understand the allegory, it's just a, loose representation anyway but 
on the spiritual plane, on the metaphysical, in terms of personal relationships and psychology and mentality, just the opposite is true. It's like that attracts like. So if I'm attracted to you, um, sort of a takes one to know one kind of a quality to that, the reason I'm attracted to you, but less so to you, and even less so to you over here, is, uh, or certainly could be thought of as magnetic in nature once you understand that when we talk about uh, consciousness or uh, the spiritual reality of things, the polarities are, are reversed. And in fact, like attracts like on the metaphysical plane. If you think of physical dense, the physical universe, as a reflection of things spiritual, then it's understandable that as a reflection, the polarities would be reversed. Uh, you don't notice when you look at your face in a mirror that it's reversed. But if you hold up a newspaper, it's obvious. It looks like Russian or something. It's <laughs> what, what happened? Why is the newspaper backward? And you think it through. Oh, yeah, well, I'm holding it in front of a mirror, so it, it would be reversed and therefore backward. That's the reason that the uh, the ambulance usually has the word ambulance painted backward on the front of its front of the vehicle because people looking in the rearview mirror see the ambulance behind them. They can actually read ambulance because it's reversed. That that all makes sense, and maybe this is a stretch, but it's it helps me to remember that the physical world is a reflection of the metaphysical world. So in the physical world, opposites attract, but in the metaphysical world, like attracts like. So if I'm going to be a negative thinker, I'm going to magnetize or attract negative outcomes. It's not a promise. It's not a guarantee, but it certainly is a likelihood, you know, that we, the law of attraction can be said many ways, that you reap what you sow, that what goes around comes around. Uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? That you go where you look and you get what you expect. Uh, this is just the natural tendency of things it's certainly the way human beings are wired you may not notice this driving your car because uh, it's pretty easy to steer but if you have experience with a motorcycle or a skateboard uh, you know much better than most automobile drivers know that you really go where you look you come around the corner on a motorcycle or a skateboard or skis for that matter and there's an obstacle in your path if you look at the obstacle you're going to hit it right you say well in a car I could look at a big rock in the road and swerve around it while I'm looking at the rock yeah you probably could but on the motorcycle you're going to hit the rock if you look at the rock you're going to hit the rock if you're uh you know, skiing, this is the this is what happened to Sonny Bono. Remember Cher's husband? The beat goes on. U.S. Senator from California for a while, restaurateur, 
Sonny Bono was roaring down a mountainside, I believe in Palm Springs, that was his home, on snow skis, and he comes around the corner and there's a big tree in his way. And unfortunately, Sonny hit the tree and died. That happens. But the reason he hit the tree is we know, even though he didn't survive to tell the story, we know enough about the mind to know that he hit the tree because he was looking at the tree. And again, I'll say it a third time, if you're in an automobile or, you know, like a van, an SUV, a truck or something, you've got a nice big steering wheel, it, your balance and the way you shift your body weight is irrelevant in a big car. So it's pretty easy to look at a something you want to avoid and still steer around it. But on that motorcycle or on those snow skis or on a skateboard, and a lot of you listening know exactly what I'm talking about. If you look at what you want to avoid, then what the mind will do is counteract or countermand or reprogram the suggestion you have in your head, swerve around that rock or go around the tree. That'll be overridden by an automatic program that says, go where you look. And so you end up hitting the rock or hitting the tree. And it happens all the time. So this is just an allegory for the larger idea of being attracted to people that you are attracted to because somehow they're like you. They have similar interests. And this often is very magical and magnetic. Well, whether it's trying to avoid, you know, rocks in the road or a, a a tree in your <laughs> and the downhill <clears throat> of your ski uh, skiing experience, <clears throat> uh, whatever the situation may be in your life, even avoiding negative thinking, we tend to reap what we sow. And I guess of all the different ways to talk about the law of attraction, the garden allegory is my favorite. Yes, you go where you look. You get what you expect. Uh, what goes around comes around. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In relationships, it's the golden rule. Treat people the way you want the way you want them to treat you, because that's the way it works. People will treat you in the way that you've treated them. So, write people off, be cold, be mean to them. That's what you're going to get back. It's almost guaranteed. Be nice to people, be positive, give them the benefit of the doubt, respect them, trust them, grant everybody a modicum of dignity and respect. You'll be amazed what a difference that makes and how that comes back in your life. Well, having said all of this then, against the backdrop of the idea that thoughts are magnetic and emotional feelings are magnetic and this is a kind of a steering wheel. I mean, where do you want to go? What direction do you want to steer in? You want to continue all of your negative thinking and try to uh, avoid the 
consequences of having attracted as a result all all of these negative circumstances? Or do you want to try to manage all of that negativity by saying that uh, it's not you attracting it, that everybody has just as much negativity in their lives, and and, uh, maybe they're just not as lucky as you, or maybe... Maybe they're more lucky than you, whatever. Uh, people who are pessimistic and create negative outcomes rarely will admit that they are victims. They will, in some senses, they'll be victims, but they'll, they'll maybe appeal for sympathy, um, but they don't really want the power to do anything about it. They don't really want to accept responsibility for having created that victimization, having having created that helplessness by attracting the negative outcome. Right? And this can be little stuff, uh, even superstitions. Uh, and uh, like, oh no, you broke the mirror, that means seven years of bad luck. And then suddenly... The person that breaks the mirror, hearing that, believing that, starts creating all of this bad luck in their lives. Of course, it's not bad luck at all. What it is, is not that they broke the mirror and are actually suffering from this superstitious belief that that, in and of itself, causes all this bad luck. It's like the reverse of the placebo effect. They they expect bad things to happen and so they do they attract them life is a self-fulfilling prophecy all right so it's it's not an ironclad guarantee that you're going to get what you expect but there is a very powerful and consistent tendency to create uh, a, a reality that conforms to your expectations to actually magnetize those opportunities. Um, you think, gosh, I broke that mirror yesterday. I better be careful. There's a, a chance I might have bad luck today. You you carry that attitude with you. And, gee, I, I, I'm going to carry this uh, delicate uh, um brittle uh, antique vase across the room. I sure hope I don't drop it. I better not drop it because I'll be in big trouble if I drop it. After all, I broke that mirror yesterday and, and now I have seven years of bad luck. Oh, no, and suddenly you drop it. Well, <laughs> you know, that's not bad luck. That's bad thinking. Stinking thinking, that's what that is. Our thoughts are very, very powerful. It matters what we think. Nothing is more seminal than a thought. That's where your uh, your whole behavior begins, with a thought and then with a feeling, sometimes followed by speech and then by the behavior. So it starts with the thought, right? And we need to get that all lined up. Lots of people, their behavior is so random and so chaotic. They could be thinking one thing, feeling another thing entirely 
different and contradictory to what they think, and then they say a third thing and do a fourth thing, and they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they want. And usually this is just the result of a lot of anxiety and stress. So I don't have a whole lot for you here except to tell you that there has to be room in the life of a positive thinker to consider the negative. It's just that we can't afford to dwell on the negative, to fixate or obsess on the negative, because then that becomes a seed that we plant that bears negative fruit. All right? So we're trapped between ignoring the negative altogether, which is just foolish, Bad things happen. Things break. Um, situations go south. Uh, people, it turns out, sometimes cannot be relied upon. Um, stuff happens. What can I say? It's smart to plan for that, to anticipate the possibility uh, of something going wrong. To have a plan B is just intelligent. But you don't want to invest emotionally in that. Otherwise, that's really where it comes from. It's not just a negative thought. It's am I heavily heavily invested emotionally in this negativity? Do I get some sort of uh, subtle or maybe even not so subtle payoff from the negative uh, happening? Do I get to say, see, I told you so? Pessimists get to be right a lot of the time. It's one of the reasons a lot of pessimists are pessimistic. They get off on being right. You know, any any idiot can come along and tell you what cannot be done. It's it's really easy to be an expert at telling people how they cannot do something and why it'll never work and why it'll fall apart and go south and whatever phrase you want to use because they get off on being right they would rather be right than wrong and successful (laughs) an optimist on the other hand is wrong a lot their dreams are often delayed or put off or deterred It's enough to make an optimist rethink his position. But they have a wonderful time on the journey. Whether the outcome is positive, as the optimist hopes it will be, or whether it's negative, which the optimist rarely, if ever, sees as a failure, but merely as an opportunity to learn and then redouble his efforts to continue toward his optimistic goal. So it's an important concept to consider that if you are a pessimist, if you like to hedge your bets uh, and not get too invested in positive outcomes, uh, know that there is a sense of safety to be found in being the cold blanket, the guy that throws cold water on everything, you know, that 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 shows up at an event where something exciting is being planned and 
and and you're the one that tells everybody why it won't work and how everything is going to fail and at the end of the day come apart and there's nothing they can do about it. If, if being the spoiler is your idea of uh, being a hit at the party, uh, you you may want to rethink that. Because you will, again, the pessimist is right much of the time. Because what the optimist has to do every time something doesn't turn out the way he or she wanted it is to learn the lesson and then do it again. See, to the optimist, there's no failure, but there are a lot of repeats, a lot of do-overs. Hold a sec while I have a sip of my coffee here, if you don't mind. Before it gets too cold. So, the pessimist will always tell you he's the realist, but he or she lives in a pretty dark world, and there is such a thing as making your own luck. And being an optimist, you do get a little extra push, I think, a little uh, religious person would say, a little extra grace from God. Um, you can make your own luck just by being positive and enthusiastic. Uh, being a dreamer, knowing what you want as specifically as possible. Lots of people say they know what they want. But if you ask them to detail it, you know, be specific. Tell me in 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 clear detail, specifically, uh, what is it that you want? That's when they may have a more difficult time telling you exactly what it is they want. And and that's important. I mean, the more specific, the more detailed you are about what you want, the more likely you are to get exactly what it is that you want. Of course, sometimes I like to say the universe will unfold what you need within what it is that you want. So sometimes when what you want, what you've been hoping and praying for manifests, it's not exactly the way you expected it to be, but you're okay with it. Well, consider that you got what you wanted, but you also got what you needed. Right? Um there's an old aphorism that supposedly goes back to Pythagoras himself uh, some 2,500 years ago where he told his students, the Pythagoreans, to never pray to God for what they want because they least of all know what they want. Imagine telling God what you want when any concept of God would have to include an understanding that God, in the religious sense, already knows what you need and is either going to make sure you get it or not, whatever. But asking God for what you want is if you know better than God. And is God a micromanager anyway? That's one of the problems that many spiritual people who say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. These are the mystic philosophers among us, the New Agers, the New Thought people, the Theosophists. The people that look to ageless and and timeless traditions, uh, you know, our sense of the absolute or a spiritual God is that uh, it's 
an aggregation of consciousness or awareness that doesn't really micromanage, that we are the micromanagers. Um, it's always struck me as odd. I've, I've said so in the past that religious people will, will pray to God to intervene in a football game a high school football game. They teach their kids to pray before a football game. Now, both sides are doing this, right? And they want God to intervene in their high school football game and, I guess, choose which team is most worthy. But, of course, they witness that God does not intervene in world hunger God does not intervene in the wars that human beings invent, in the starvation that we invented. Human beings invented this stuff. God did not invent starvation or war. Human beings do that. And uh, the religious idea of a personal God that does not intervene in extreme poverty and war, but would intervene in a high school football game is just absurd on the surface of it. What are you people thinking? And I'm afraid there's not a whole lot of thinking, just a lot of reflexive knee-jerk behavior around this idea of God. And yet there are people like us who Maybe we just can't find a fit in religion, but we have a longing anyway. We have this urge. We have this sense that somehow, through the heart, everything is connected to everything, and that it's difficult to explain. Well, the idea of being a positive thinker, learning to manage negativity, I think this is a great way to begin to explain how the laws of metaphysics can be applied Outside of religion, the laws of spirituality can be understood and applied. We can live these laws without having to join a particular religion. I have, you know, I'll speak for myself personally, I have respect for everybody who aspires to know that which is religious, spiritual, or philosophical through their heart to know the wisdom of love of of compassion of of forgiveness of of helping the poor uh if that's what you're interested in knowing love and living love i don't care what your religion is or what you call yourself or whether you go to a temple or a church or a mosque or a a cornfield or a forest or inside your own head. None of that matters to me. Personally, and I think I speak for a lot of people in this regard, if your intention is good. I met a a person yesterday in Hilo who was describing his particular ministry, I'll call it, as based on sincerity. He believes there is power in sincerity. And I was fascinated to hear him it's what I would call intention, good intentions. And I believe even if in life we fail many times, if our intentions are noble 
if our intentions are good, uh, that you get a lot of credit for that. It, <laughs> you, you accelerate and promote your growth by having a good intention, or what this fellow was calling sincerity. Well, darn it, that's what we're talking about, right? We all know the hypocrite who might create an appearance of being a religious person or appear like they're a spiritual person, but you can't trust them, and they they lie to you, and they cheat on you, and uh, they don't do what they say they're going to do, and, well, all right, so they claim to be religious. Well, fine. Uh, but anybody that has love in their heart and wants to understand their fellow man and the relationship to the universe and all that is, through the wisdom of the heart, through qualities of truth and, and, and goodness and beauty, of uh, what we describe as wisdom, of uh, kindness and, and tolerance and patience, uh, compassion and forgiveness and generosity, well, that's all the religion you need in my book. And it's based on the core metaphysical idea of like attracts like. And you reap what you sow. And what you put out, you get back. So a positive thinker is a positive thinker because he understands his thoughts are things. A positive thinker is a positive thinker because he and she understand their thoughts are the seedlings of reality. And that like a seed, a thought that you believe in, that you repeat and that you care about, knows how to manifest itself, just as a seed knows how to manifest itself. If you break open an acorn you will not see a tiny little oak tree inside. What is inside the acorn, however, is the potential to become a mighty oak tree. It does not have an oak tree inside. But it has the innate intelligence inside. That means you don't have to understand how the acorn becomes the oak because as long as the acorn understands, <laughs> that's all that's necessary. And then through the miracle, the miraculous combination of sunlight, water, oxygen, carbon dioxide, right, and some minerals from the earth, this seed sprouts and begins to grow in two directions, down into the earth and up to the light. About eight or nine months ago, I did a program on the tree of life, and we talked about how much the tree, a tree, if we pulled it out of the ground and shook the dirt off the roots, how much the roots would look like the top of the tree, or the branches of the tree would look like the root system. And you could turn the tree upside down, and it would still look pretty much the same. And so that tree is like a bar magnet that sprouts from a seed and then grows in opposite directions, 
deeper into the earth, into the, the material world, but also up toward the sky, toward the light, toward its spiritual source, toward the ethereal world. And you wonder what's so majestic and so appealing about great trees that you want to walk over and touch them and hug them and climb trees. It's one of the saddest things about becoming an adult. We're afraid to climb trees. I really miss it. It's been a while. I've done it as an adult. I have climbed trees as an adult. But not as many as I'd like to. You need just the right tree. You can't just climb any old tree. Got to be the right tree. But do you remember how at home you felt in those trees? It's really a wonderful feeling to be up in a tree. So the whole idea that the seedling knows how to become its destiny, and it's not going to get mixed up along the way, the acorn will be an oak tree. It's not going to be a maple. And the maple seed is not going to be an oak tree. You understand what I'm saying? If you want radishes, you've got to plant radish seeds. If you plant seeds you got out of a watermelon, they're not going to be radishes and they're not going to be oak trees. So it's all encoded within the seed. Your dreams your positive thoughts, your goals, the desired outcomes that you see clearly and specifically in your mind's eye and care about strongly and positively in your heart can be thought into existence, will tend to manifest for you. So that if we Instead of that, or even in addition to that, counsel our negative thoughts, well, those are seeds too. And like weed seeds that we would be deliberately planting in this case by dwelling on the negative, they will grow also. And if, like most people's thinking, when they're not trained or disciplined to think clearly, You go back and forth, positive thought, positive dream, positive wish, gosh, I sure hope so, and then blend in with those positive thoughts and hopes and dreams a bunch of negative stuff about times in the past that you tried and failed, Uh, programming you got from your parents or your siblings or the idiot that lives up the block from you, who knows, who loves to tell you what cannot be done and how you're going to fail for sure, and you've always failed, and everybody fails, and you're just crazy to be such a uh, uh, an optimist about things, such a fool you are, and so you believe them. I mean, what? Uh, how is it that we are in the 21st century and not even curious about the placebo effect? You know, for a hundred years, we've had to do these double-blind studies with drugs because people who th- 
people's attitude has an impact on the efficacy of the medicine. I was talking to a friend of mine not long ago who was a physician about the role that nurses play in the priestcraft of health care. Doctors wear those long white coats and show you their stethoscopes for a reason. It's part of the priestcraft. And people, you know, they, they may not fall down and worship at the feet of medical doctors, but it's pretty darn close. And that doctor's bedside manner, their ability to let you know that they are not only competent, but highly skilled and well-trained and very dedicated to your welfare and, and to your good health, can be enhanced just by a nurse saying, when the doctor is not around, my friend reminded me of this the other day, he said, yeah, a nurse can really do a lot when the doctor is not around, to just say to the patient, you know you have a very good doctor. You know, that one statement said once can affect the outcome of a major surgery or or some illness or injury that may be, you know, touch and go for a while. To just say to the patient, oh, you're going to be fine. The worst is over. There's a nice affirmation. The worst is over. Okay. You don't want to say, uh, paramedics have learned this art. You don't want to say, um, you know, you're going to be okay now because maybe they know they're not going to be okay. Maybe they can see that their leg is not attached. They lost a leg, right? The guys in the military will tell you this. They say, well, I could, I could see I was not in one piece. So you tell me I'm going to be okay. I know better. I'm not going to be okay. I'm missing the one of my legs is gone here. I don't even know why I'm still alive. This doesn't make sense. But to say the worst is over, I learned this from some EMTs and paramedics I worked with. And we talked at length about the hypersuggestibility of somebody who's just been injured or somebody who has been anesthetized and about to go into surgery, or just somebody that's highly stressed and confused, they can be hyper-suggestible in just one statement, positive or negative, bang, hits them like it's absolute and total reality. And so, obviously, here we're talking about, in this case, people who are injured or ill, who are, uh, sick and and it's touch and go and maybe they're about to go into surgery and that's the last place that you want a, a negative person to say well I sure hope you make it you know a lot of people don't survive these and get that guy out of here what, <laughs> what do you got that guy in here talking like that for get, to, get him out of here what you want are the people that say you know see on the other side you know, you're going to do just fine. The worst is over. You're going to feel great on the other side of this. You know, you have a really, and then the nurse says, you know, you have a really good doctor, right? Or the placebo effect, the doctor saying, now, 
I wish more doctors understood how important it is to take the time to describe the efficacy of a particular medicine or procedure and just say that, you know, these pills I'm going to give you, these are very, very powerful, whatever they happen to be, right, antibiotics, pain meds, whatever they do. The doctor doesn't take time or effort to caution the patient and say, these are very effective, these are very powerful drugs, so take them exactly as prescribed. Don't be late if it says three times a day before meals. Be sure you eat at the right time and take the pill. Just These are powerful and effective drugs. And those words can do more than the drugs themselves, don't you see? Because that's the cybernetic nature, the suggestible nature of human beings. We create what we believe in. We go where we look and get what we expect. So here we are, today's theme. How do we look at negative then? What's the best way for a positive thinker to deal with negative thinking? Because, again, to ignore or deny that anything could go wrong is just stupid. Here I'm a positive thinker uh, driving down the freeway one day, uh, thinking positively about the car trip that my family and I are going to go on in a day or two, and I suddenly get a flash in my mind that I haven't even looked at the tires in a year. I don't know the condition of my tires. I have no idea. And I'm about to go on this car trip. Oh, but I'm a positive thinker. And if I think negatively, I'm going to bring on the negative, so I better not think negatively like I might get a flat tire or I might get a blowout because that will increase the chances it's going to happen. So I'll just ignore it altogether. That's not positive thinking. That example makes it clear, I would think, that that's just being foolish. Right? And so... On the other hand, if I worry about it, I could tend to create an incident in that way. So what is the appropriate middle ground? Well, it's to worry once. And that's the process. That, that's the way I describe the process of how a positive thinker, a mind scientist, somebody that understands the law of suggestion, the nature of suggestibility, uh, the placebo effect, deals with negativity. You do it quickly, you do it elegantly, and you do it reasonably, which means, in this case, look at your damn tires. <laughs> or if you don't understand what you're looking for, like how much tread is enough, to be safe, and what does it look like if a tire is worn or unevenly worn? How do I know if I've been running too much air pressure or not enough air pressure? Or if the tire is out of alignment, camber, caster, toe-in, there's a lot to it. Well, have somebody that understands tires. Go to your tire store and have a tire expert take a look at those wheels for you and uh, then deal with it right 
if you look at the negative in your life, let me put it to you this way. If you understand what I'm saying, that to ignore the negative or to deny the possibility of negative things happening is just plain foolish, and that's obvious to you. And yet you also understand that to fixate or obsess or dwell upon the negative would tend to cause it to manifest in your life, and you're trapped in between those two possibilities, well, then resolve it in an appropriate way by doing an appropriate amount of negative thinking and then get back to the positive as quickly as possible. Handle it. Manage it. And this is what I mean by worry once. The secret to worrying elegantly, to being a efficient and effective worrier, uh, to do it quickly and appropriately so that you can learn whatever you need to learn, create a plan B, modify your behavior in whatever way that needs it, and then get back to the positive. Um, you have to do this because, again, if you ignore it altogether, you've got a problem. And if you dwell upon it, you've got a problem. So you've got to find some middle ground. And that's what I mean by worry once. Now, the mind being what it is, Oh, let me add this one other element. It ought to be obvious, but let me make sure I state this clearly. When you worry once, in other words, when you decide I have to do this elegantly and effectively and quickly, because if I spend too much time looking at the negative, then I'm going to be planting weed seeds. Right? I'm going to be encouraging the negative as if it were now a goal. So what you have to do is go to the worst-case scenario. You have to take it to the wall. Right? It's like uh, if this forest fire burns down my house, what are we going to do? Not just what would happen if it burned down the garage, but not the rest of the house. Right? Uh, not if... Uh, we had some smoke damage, but aside from that, the house wasn't burned. In that case, what would I do? You don't need to look at all the various permutations or combinations or variations. You, you can't afford to spend the time thinking up a different plan or strategy or even attitude for all the different ways or degrees to which your house could burn down in the forest fire. What you have to do to be an elegant, worry-once, positive thinker is to take it to the limit <clears throat> and say to yourself, if I were to lose this house, if this whole damn thing were to burn down to the ground, and there's nothing left, what would I do? And face that fear. And plan 
What would I do in that situation? And then go back to your positive planning and living your positive, goal-oriented life. Now, the mind being the mind, the way it is, the way it tends to be, is the ego is going to speak to you and say, like, hey, Michael, I just thought of a variation. One way your house could burn down that maybe you hadn't thought of. Shouldn't we think about that? Or, hey, Michael, it's your negative conscience here. It's your ego calling out to you. Hey, are you sure you looked at every possible way we could lose this house? Have you looked at every variation? Because I don't think we've planned for all the different ways you could have bad luck. I've got to be prepared to answer, and I'm encouraging you in your life to be prepared to to answer that doubting part of you and say, wait a minute, we already did that. We worried once. And when we did that, don't you remember, we looked at the worst possible scenario and decided how to handle that. And if I can handle the worst, well, I can certainly handle anything short of that. And I don't need to look at every possible scene, scenario, or or, or possibility, because that would take so much time that I'd be dwelling on the negative, I'd be expecting the negative, I'd be co-creating the negative. I can't afford to do that. But I also can't afford to ignore it or deny it. So i got to take that middle ground, worry once, look at the worst-case scenario. God, that's ugly. But we'd get by. Somehow we'd get by. Look at the worst. Accept that that's the worst that could happen, and this is what I would do in that situation. And now... Put your attention on the positive. I don't know how we're going to get through it, but we're going to get through it. And here's what we're going to do. And i got a plan, and we're going to do this and this and this and this. So that if nothing happens, we're cool. If the worst happens, we're cool. And if something in the middle that I didn't really sketch out happens, well, we'll figure that out because we've already planned for the worst and the best. You see, we we worried once, we looked at the worst, and now we're going to put our attention on a positive outcome. This is the role of negativity in a positive thinker's life. Quick, elegant, <laughs> take it to the wall, take it to the limit, and say, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? Plan for that. And then... Turn your attention to the positive, and if everything unfolds in a positive way, you're good. If the worst happens, you plan for it, and if anything in between, something bad, it's not the worst, but it's not so good, well, you accounted for the worst, so you can handle something short of that. This is an elegant, and I would suggest even a graceful way to deal with negative thinking 
knowing that thoughts have power. And uh, having said that, let's see if we can respond to some of your questions and your comments here on the webinar. Again, we're live today. We've got a bunch of people calling uh, to the callers. We have callers from all over the United States today, from Pittsburgh and Reno and New Mexico. Uh, if, as a caller, you have a question, just press star 2. That will raise your hand, and I'll acknowledge you. And we have many more people listening on the web, so let me go over there and check the text questions. And if you're on the web, you can just type into the little box there, and uh, I'll read your question or your comment. And we'll do a little visualization exercise, and then I'll let you go. It is a holiday weekend. Did I wish you all a happy Labor Day? I think you did. Last day of summer. And uh, let's begin in La Habra with Carol. Carol Postel, always with us. Carol's only missed a couple of these in the year and a half or more that we've been doing them. And Carol says, hello and aloha. Hi again to Michael and Doreen. Hi, Carol. In Honolulu, our friend Bert Fishman is with us. Hiya, Bert. He says, hello, Michael. He says, a couple of thoughts um, on metaphysical attraction. Birds of a feather flock together, negative or positive thinking. I once had the blues because I had no shoes until upon the street I saw a man with no feet. Keep up the good work, Michael. Aloha, Bert. Yeah, well, that sort of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Let me see if I can zoom in on this page a little bit. Here's a long one from Diane in Albuquerque. Let's wade into this. She said, I work for a large international organization, over 120,000 employees, and over the past several years, there have been large pockets of layoffs. It's a pressure cooker of high stress and long work hours. And in the last couple of months, the layoffs hit our area, and our team members were slowly being laid off. Knowing work could be ending for us. Um, let's see. The other project lead and I put together a plan B and designed a company that we've been dreaming of for years. The opportunity began to look better than what we've been experiencing for the past decade. And the more we researched our idea and worked on our plan, the more joy we found in the new business plan and the possibility of moving forward to this opportunity. And she goes on, she says, well, we then checked on the severance packages and, uh, let's see, they were greater by far than we had ever imagined. So we went to the senior executive and requested that uh, we be laid off together at the, end of the <laughs> at the end of the year. And the senior executive went into shock at our request. Uh, since the day of that meeting, we've begun getting lots of job offers across the company. Uh, the first members of our team who were laid off and went into shock and freeze mode 
Uh, we shared the severance package information, provided counseling and information on job openings, and wrote their resumes and cover letters together. And as each uh, laid-off staff member finds work, we communicated out loud to the rest of the team. This is very smart, Dan. So uh, she goes on, she says, uh, so many uh, found wonderful opportunities, and they are happy. And for others who are still on the team, uh, we assist with updating their resumes and bringing their plan Bs to be prepared just in case. Our work environment is transforming from one of stress and fear to one of preparedness and adventure and hope. So the lesson of the story may be accept the journey, be aware, plan when you can, and be open to the adventure and uh, and the learning that one can experience with change. The journey continues, Diane. Well, I can't hardly add much to that now, can I? That's very well said. And congratulations. Wow. Talk about turning something negative into something positive. You see, that's what a positive thinker does, right? You can't fire me, I quit. But before I tell you I'm quitting... <laughs> We're going to get all our ducks in a row, check on the severance package, see where we stand. Uh, a lot of wonderful companies have been born out of the ashes of a mismanaged company before them. You know, One of the disheartening things about maturing as an adult in this world is finding out that the adults we work for really don't have that much to offer. There are some exceptional people in the world but they're rare, the kind of people that you learn from. And, uh, boy, when you find one, hold on to them. You know, make them a dear friend. Be nice to them. Tell them how much, show them how much you appreciate them. Uh, because most folks are faking it. And I love people. I really, I do not, I, I do not mean to sound contemptuous of people at all. I, I get a little irritated. I hear, hear Bill Maher talking about how stupid Americans are. Uh, it irritates me. It bothers me. I, the fact that he's right uh, concerns me also. I mean, that's. I, my partner Steve has a great way of saying this. He, when he talks about stupid people, he always makes it clear that the word stupid is rooted in stupefy. They have the same root word. Stupefy is, doesn't mean that you're ignorant or lacking in the mentality. It means that you're dazed and confused. You're fascinated in a negative way. You're stupefied. You're a deer in the headlights. You you don't have enough information. You don't know whether to go up, down, left, right, forward, or back. You're just, again, deer in the headlights, stupefied. And that's a lot of folks. They're so stressed. And in business, how many how many of us have had bosses that were just horrible, horrible bosses? They had product knowledge, right? They had product knowledge. What they did not have was people skills. And business after business after business falls apart or limps along 
because it's led by men and women who have product knowledge but who do not have people skills and they don't know how to manage people. They manage people the way they were parented. And they parent their children the way they were parented. And although all that bad parenting and, and bad management gets passed along the way. Anyway, that's a wonderful story Diane tells, and thank you for that, Diane. Making lemonade out of lemons, making something really wonderful and positive out of a, a very scary situation. Out of Winnetka, Eddie is with us today. He says, how do you deal with guilt and the coulda, woulda, shoulda, wouldas? Woulda, coulda, shoulda, woulda, <laughs> all of that. Uh, guilt is tough. Keep in mind that the fact that you feel guilty doesn't mean you are guilty. It means you feel guilty. Now, that doesn't tell you very much, does it? Um, often we think of guilt in terms of a judge rendering a decision or a jury rendering a decision and the judge banging the gavel and pronouncing a sentence. You are now found guilty in this court of law and as a result there's a price you're going to have to pay. The emotional feeling of guilt is more like being charged in the first place. But to many of us who feel guilty and have felt guilty for long periods of time, it tends to feel like the judgment has already been rendered. Bang, you hear the gavel hitting. I am guilty, I am bad, I am wrong, I'm not enough, I misbehaved, dear me, what shall I ever do? I think the very first thing we have to do when we recognize that we are carrying guilt is remind ourselves that's a feeling and that it correlates with being charged but not found guilty. That we make a mistake of a matter of degree by saying that because I emotionally feel guilt, that I've been judged guilty, the gavels come down, the fact that I feel guilty means I am guilty, but I'm a good person, so... There has to be a price to pay. How do I put myself in jail? How do I punish myself? Michael, I'm getting away with it. Uh, isn't it funny? Human beings are so remarkably good that if we feel that we are inadequate or have failed, we want to punish ourselves. We want to redeem ourselves. Uh, I don't think this is a problem for Eddie, but there are people in the world that whip themselves, you know, self-flagellation. They, they actually whip themselves with cat-of-nine-tails as if a physical beating of self is going to 
redeem them or improve them in God's eyes. This is what many aesthetics have told themselves in various cultures that if they would just embrace poverty and hunger and having nothing in life, that that punishment, that torture, like the fires of hell itself, will purify us and redeem us. And we have to suffer. We're bad. Well, I'm not going to get into the Freudian psychology. I'm not really qualified and certainly not prepared to get into the the, the masochism of, of all of this the idea of purging ourselves of this guilt that we feel. But I will say, as a little tip for Eddie and anybody else that feels this, we all must feel this from time to time. How do I shake this guilt? All right, I'm not going to whip myself, I promise. I won't beat myself up. But how do I shake it? How do I scrape it off the bottom of my shoe? How do I, how do I get rid of this guilty feeling? I think you start by considering that you have charged yourself. You have, it, the pronouncement has not, not been made by the judge or the jury. You just have a feeling of guilt. So it's like an allegation has been made. You're at the beginning of that process. The allegation has been made, but you've not been found guilty yet. So put the emphasis on, in your self-talk, on I feel. I feel guilty, not I'm guilty because I feel guilty. It's I feel guilty. Now, dialogue with that feeling. Crosswire that feeling. Uh, have an intuitive conversation with that feeling. The way I work with myself and with my private clients, even over the telephone, now that I'm in Hawaii, I do this on a regular basis, and it works fine. I tell the person over the phone to close their eyes and relax. I guide them into the alpha brainwave level of focused passion and, and attention. Teach them to visualize while feeling very safe and relaxed. And then ask them questions about the feeling. If the feeling had a color, what color would it be? This guilt that we're talking about in this case. If, if that had a color, trust your first impression. What color would it be? If it had a texture to it, and you imagine reaching out to touch, well, in this case, the guilt, besides that color you told me a minute ago, what would it feel like to the touch? What would its texture be? And without logic or any kind of reasoning, just intuitively, by trusting your first impression, you come up with, a color, whatever pops into your head. You say, yeah, but I don't know the reason for that, Michael. Keep in mind, we're working with feelings, not thoughts. Feelings don't need reasons. Feelings often are irrational. If a feeling needed a reason to be, it would be a thought, not a feeling. Reasoning is a thought process. Emotions are more often than not unreasonable, so we have to approach understanding our emotional feelings 
in a non-reasoning place. And I'm showing you a technique that I use. So in alpha with my eyes closed, visualizing, feeling the feeling, in this case we're talking about guilt, I ask myself or I ask my client, what color does it seem to be? Trust your first impression. What's the texture? Does it when you when you imagine touching it, does it have a temperature? Color, texture, temperature. Does it have an odor? Sounds like a funny question, but ask it anyway. Does this emotional feeling have a fragrance? What's it smell like? Does it have a taste? How does guilt taste? And even if you don't come up with much in terms of the the olfactory or the gustatory, or you're so far into your imagination, you're sort of questioning what relevance this has anyway. If you just stuck with the color, texture, and temperature, you'd cross-wire the emotion. Now, don't you see, you have a feeling of how the feeling feels? The emotional feeling has a temperature, a texture, and a color. You've cross-wired it. And you've brought it into an area of the brain and the mind where you're more likely to have insight and understanding. So the next question I would ask is, what does this feeling remind you of? This feeling that you describe now intuitively, just by trusting your first impression, is, is having this color and this texture and, and this temperature to it and maybe even a fragrance and a taste. What's it remind you of? Well, probably another time that you were guilty. See? Or maybe it reminds you of a time that rather surprises you. What does this have to do with that? And then I suggest to my clients that they ask the all-important third question, which is, what's my personal growth lesson? We did a lot of this last week in the in the wisdom school. What's my personal growth lesson? What is this feeling here to teach me? Again, we're we're answering Eddie's question about his guilt, but it could be anything. Any any emotional feeling that's negative and needs processing. Remember your positive feelings <laughs> they don't need processing. You don't need to understand love happiness, joy, and peace because it represents understanding itself. Nothing more to understand. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if the feeling hurts or upsets you in any way at all, it's a so-called negative or a fear-based feeling, and it needs understanding, processing. And this is a good way to do it. So, what's it remind me of? What can I learn about myself from the way I feel? And when you get the aha, the feeling goes away. In this case, it would be the guilt goes away. But I think the most important step is the first one. Just resist the temptation to make the leap that because you feel guilty, you are guilty. 
the gavel has come down, you've been found guilty, and now there's a price to pay. And instead say, I feel guilty, that just means I feel guilty. doesn't mean I am. And so I've been charged with something. I'm going to have to, I mean, what did Perry Mason do? first thing he did was bring in that private eye. You know, I'm going to have to do some investigation and some exploration here, find out what's going on. All right, let's see. Let me hit refresh. Anybody else on the uh, tech side of things? And thanks for that, Eddie. Down in Apple Valley says, hi, on a larger scale, uh, how do we put a positive spin on what's occurring nationally and globally that is climate change and its devastating effects and global economic collapse? Not easily, Don, not easily, I admit. But uh, if you take a breath and relax and step back and say to yourself, well, if this is what it takes to wake up enough people, then so be it. Sometimes uh, things have to really hurt before you can get people's attention. Things have to get really, really bad before you get enough people upset. Um, you know, in the 60s, I participated in anti-war demonstrations of 500,000 people or more before Bush invaded Iraq in 2001 2002 there were over 10 million people in the streets of the world uh, the last four or five years that Bush was doing all these horrible things we couldn't get 150 people to Washington that's where we are now things have gotten worse and worse but people have given up largely on the street demonstration. Now we're seeing health care being taken away from us. No single payer. Now it looks like no option. And so we can see that the government does not represent the people. It represents large corporations. The same insurance company that pulled the plug on Granny that refused to give insurance because of a pre-existing condition that forced your family into bankruptcy is now winning the health care debate because government is so purely corrupt. I don't see people in the streets, right? I see a handful of crazies taking AK-47s to town meetings and talking about revolution and killing the president not enough people are upset yet. Not enough people are upset about global warming. Things have to get bad. And things may have to get worse. But then there will be change. And that's about all you can do is hope for change sooner rather than later. Hope that, you know, these fires, the drought in the southwestern United States, you cannot be, it's tragic, it's horrible. But you can't be surprised. And if you are surprised, then we got to do a little more reading, don't we? It's one of the reasons I moved out of the Southwest. There's no water there. It's going to be very, very, very bad. To my friends in L.A., get out of town. Go to where it rains. You're going to need that water. Get a little bit of land. You're going to need to grow your own food. 
Don't wait until you get to the supermarket and they're closed. No food. Get out of town now. Get get back to the land. I'm not saying you have to go back to 19th century living with kerosene lamps and horse-drawn wagons. There's people all over out here in Hawaii and all over the United States in rural areas that have photovoltaics and passive uh, hot water, you know, that collect the heat directly for their water, as well as photovoltaics, and they have air generators and methane generators and use them to run their computers. So you can have a blend of high-tech and low-tech and appropriate tech all in the same place. It's not either or. You don't have to give up your big screen TV and your computer to go live in the countryside. You've got to give up being gridlocked on the 405 every day. Robert Siegel in Irvine says, Aloha, Michael, great topic. So when I try to hold the thought of what I want to manifest while able to control the conscious thought, it is much harder to control the subconscious mind. Uh, Have a great week. Yeah, control is a funny word anyway. Manage is a better word. I don't want to split hairs, but... You can't control your thoughts, but you can manage what you do with the thought, how you respond to it. You know, it's not like I have to eliminate all the negativity in my life. You will have negative thoughts. Just say, in response, yes to the ones you want to empower, and no, I release the ones you choose not to empower. Sometimes you might want to say yes to a negative thought. You know, I did check the tires, and they're in horrible shape, and I'm not going on any vacation until I get new tires put on here. Nothing negative about that, right? (laughs) So it's what you do with the thought that matters. Tucson, Lorelei says, Aloha, Michael, excellent class. I'm listening from work today, so I can't call, but we'll try next week. Peace and love to you and Doreen. And uh, thanks for that. Here, I'm going to extend the class a little bit. I got another button I got to hit. Um, so let's see. Let me hit refresh again. That's pretty much it for the text questions and comments. Let me go over to the telephone, and I don't see anybody with a hand raised. So you guys are still being a little bit bashful about using that. I'm going to have this feature from this point forward, though. So if you ever do want to pick up the phone and call, feel free to do that. Either way is fine. We'll keep doing the class with both of those options. Let's do a little visualization, quick visualization exercise, and we'll call it a day. If you'll close your eyes. Get comfortable. Take a nice, slow, deep breath or two, really slowing it all down. And as you take these slow, deep breaths, imagine as you inhale through the nose, pulling in strength and power, and as you exhale just as slowly, through the nose or the mouth. 
feel the letting go on that side. It's when you exhale these slow, deep breaths that you initiate the letting go process. And after a few slow, deep breaths, then let your body breathe itself and find its own natural rhythm. Shallow breathing as you continue to create and sense a feeling of your body unwinding, muscles relaxing, feel the stress falling away. Like butter on a warm day, slowly softening, yield to the wonderful feelings of relaxation and safety even if you believe you're just making it all up. A nice deepening exercise, and I don't do this much, but I'd like you to know the little tool, is after you've initiated with slow breathing, deep breathing, and the feeling of letting go with your eyes closed, all of this muscular tension, you can deepen your meditation or self-hypnosis level by imagining yourself walking down the staircase. As you count backwards from 10 to 1, now I'll do that for you now, but you can do this on your own as well, and as you count ten, imagine yourself moving down the staircase, nine, going deeper and and deeper, becoming more relaxed, eight, as you continue to walk slowly down the staircase, deeper, seven, feel yourself, becoming more and more relaxed, going six deeper and deeper, more and more relaxed, down the staircase, five. Take your time, just feel yourself, four, going deeper, and in a moment, when I finally reach the number one, you'll be much deeper than before. Even more relaxed, feeling very, very safe. Three, moving deeper in the stairs, going down. Two, deeper and more relaxed. much deeper than before. One, stepping off the staircase. Imagine yourself going through a doorway outdoors into a beautiful garden. The most beautiful garden you can imagine. Full of flowers, beautiful trees, a shady walk, 
a place you remember having visited once in your life, a place entirely from your imagination, or some combination of the two, whatever you dream up as a beautiful Eden, a heavenly paradise, a beautiful garden of perfect peace, safety, and ideal relaxation. Imagine yourself strolling through this garden. And you find a place to sit. Maybe it's a sunny meadow or beneath a shade tree or in an even cooler and shadier forested place. Maybe beside a little stream or a lake. You dream it up and put yourself upon the earth sitting down on the earth and as I always suggest at this point feel grounded or plugged in you are an electrical being you are a spiritual energy being and that energy wants the earth the mother it wants to be grounded all electrical circuits end up hooked to the ground, to the earth. A real, literal earth ground, that's where all energy goes. That's what it's looking for. So you be the path to the ground. And at the same time, at the top of your head, imagine being hooked to the sky whether receptive to a gentle precipitation downward or as if there were a pencil-thin beam of laser light coming down from the sky into the very top of your head. And it's a wonderful, wonderful idea to begin all meditation exercises with this orientation so that instead of just feeling as if you're floating in space, you're in fact plugged in to get recharged. To the source and to the ground. To the sky, the father aspect, and to the earth. The mother polarity of that energy. And you're the middle. You're the conductor around which there is an electromagnetic field for any time current passes, there is a magnetic field around it. If you have a compass in your house, put a battery next to it and see how the compass responds to the battery. Even if the battery is not in the circuit or turned on, even if it's not powering anything, just put the battery next to the compass and watch the compass move and spin and dance. Well, that's what you are. You are an invisible magnetic field, a matrix of organized energy 
connected at once to the earth and the sky. And your purpose in life is to experience being yourself. You are the one life from a unique point of view. And even though you're part of all that is, that unique point of view sometimes feels lonely. It can feel a little scary. It can start to worry us, make us feel insecure, as if we're not part of anything at all. And so be not afraid of your negative thoughts. Even though we understand that thoughts are things and and they act like seedlings to manifest our reality, we have to face the negative. There is no positive polarity that is completely devoid of the influence of the negative pole. And there is no place on the bar magnet that is completely devoid of the positive influence. Like the yin and yang symbol in Taoism, both the black side and the white side have a spot of the opposite in each. So you're always in the middle. You might be on the 50-yard line between the positive and the negative. You might be almost all positive with just a touch of negative. But look at the negative. A positive thinker must be able to identify the negative. Look at it. Face it. And ask yourself, what can I learn from this? And so that I do not dwell upon nor empower the negative, let's do this elegantly, efficaciously, That's a big word for efficient, (laughs) efficiently, effectively, quickly. Let's look at the worst. What if I was guilty of something? What if the tires really are bald? What if we're all going to get fired from this job? Well, let's assume the worst and plan for it. See yourself now in a situation that you've been worried about. And you've been afraid to to stare directly into the face of that negativity because you didn't want to give it power but it seems to have a grip on you, seems to be hanging around for a reason. Seems as if there's something you can learn from this negativity. So face it. See if it has a color. In the most abstract way, does it have a texture or a temperature? In a more literal way, what's it really about? What's it saying to you? When was the last time you felt like this? 
And what have you learned about yourself since then? If the worst did happen, what would you do? See yourself handling it, managing it. Admitting, well, that 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 might not be as bad as I thought. And again, it might be really horrible still. But it's not likely. It's just I don't have the time to dwell on every possible way my life could come apart. So I'm going to look at the worst and adjust for that, account for that, manage that. Here's my plan B. And now, having looked at the worst, I can handle anything short of that. So I did my due diligence. I worried once. Now put your attention back on the positive. Let it go. And any time some part of you complains, hey, you didn't look at every possible way your life could come apart, remind that part of yourself, I can't afford to. That would take too long and then I'd be planting seeds and growing weeds. And I'd rather only plant the seeds of the things that I really wish to grow, the positive ones. I can't dwell on the negative. Besides, I already looked at the worst case. I planned for the worst case. So I can handle anything short of that. In Lewis Carroll's story of Alice in Wonderland, in the story Through the Looking Glass, the White Knight reminds us the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Only the White Knight says it this way. The White Knight says to Alice, be prepared for anything. And then nothing can surprise you. Be prepared for everything. And nothing will surprise you. Be prepared. And now that you've looked at the negative and considered the worst case scenario, take a breath, fill your lungs, and as you exhale, let that go. You don't have to come back here again. Put your attention on the positive. See the dream manifesting. See the outcome in front of you. Feel the feeling of, oh boy, I'm going for it. And get ready to open your eyes. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to open your eyes. So remember where you are, what you'll see in the room around you, and how you'll feel as you effortlessly bring with you that enthusiasm and those positive dreams. And now, open your eyes, wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, positive, enthusiastic. I just got a minute before this thing ends, so let me back out of here by saying thank you for being here. Hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend and this Labor Day of 2009. Remember, the replays and the podcasts are always available. Send your friends to theagelesswisdom.com. Send them a copy of these programs, and please visit our premium audio site, FocusedPassion.com.
com, focused with an ed, focusedpassion.com, and get those free trial programs. There's six full, complete programs, studio quality shows with Steve and I together, having what we think are some compelling conversations. And if you like the Mystery School, I think you're going to like the premium programs, Finding Yourself in Paradise at FocusedPassion.com. It's all the time we have. Thanks again. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. Aloha from Maui. This is Michael Benner. Maui, 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 this is Michael Benner.